0: All right, turn to Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you want to say it. Turn to that little book in the Bible. Sorry, I'm logistically challenged here. Too many things in my pockets. And I definitely want to have these in my pocket because I probably will need them. All right, so we we ventured out into Habakkuk last week and we looked at the first chapter. And remember, Habakkuk was a prophet who prophesied just before the invasion of Judah by the Babylonians. And in the first chapter, the prophet asked God a question. And the question was, How long shall I cry and you will not hear? I know I've asked God that question before. I'm sure some of you have asked God that question before. And as the prophet asked this question, he asked this question in the context of the sin and the violence of his country. The violence, the injustice. Remember he said, Lord, all I see is violence. And the law is powerless against the injustices that are taking place. In chapter 2, God commands the prophet to write the vision and make it plain. Now, this is important. We're going to talk about this today. And then God declares that what we just read to the little children, God made this declaration the just shall live by faith. And describes the judgment that will come upon the wicked. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3 closes out this book with a prayer and a psalm that Habakkuk wrote. And it's a prayer and it's a psalm that declares his unconditional faith in God. So let's read. I'm going to read not the whole chapter, we're going to concentrate on the first four verses today. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through verse 4. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him but the just shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that is written for us on every page of this holy scripture we call the Bible. Father, we ask that you would, by the spirit of God that that dwells within us who are in Christ, that you would open our hearts and open our minds and illuminate your word that your word would wash our minds, would renew our minds, would transform us and conform us to the very image of the Son of God. We ask, God, that you would mold us and shape us and make us into a people that show forth your glory in this dark world, that men would have hope beyond this life, hope beyond what they can gain for themselves, that their hope would be in Jesus. And that our lives would proclaim that Jesus and his gospel with our words and with our deeds, with everything we have and everything that is within us. We ask this for your glory, God, in Jesus' name, amen. So here in these first four verses of chapter 2, the prophet is preparing himself, so in Verse 1, he asks in the, in the first verse, in the, I'm sorry, in the first chapter, he asks God two questions and God answers him. But it's not the end of what God is showing him. And so those two questions were preparation for the prophet to hear what God would have to say, how God would answer his questions. And in preparation, the prophet begins by saying, it's recorded here in verse 1 of chapter 2, the prophet says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. The prophet prepares himself to hear from God. Now, we're not just reading history here. This is history. We can go back and we can... We know when this happened. We know what was proclaimed by the prophet, what God told the prophet, and we see the product of what happened in history. God foretold the coming destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, and history clearly shows us this. Uh, still today in Jerusalem, they find arrow points from the Babylonian invasion when the Bab- because the Babylonians shot so many arrows so many things into that city, and they ultimately destroyed that city and carried away all of its inhabitants captive. So this is not a question of whether it did happen. This is history. This actually happened. But the point of God recording this, the point of God declaring this to the prophet and the prophet recording it for us was not just so that we would know history, it was so that we would know the Lord. Because the same way God dealt with the sin of Judah, or the sin of Israel, or the sin of any other nation, is the same way he deals with sin today. God doesn't ignore sin today, he didn't ignore sin back then. And it's not just the sin of nations, we look at this and we talk about the sin of Judah That's what the prophet... He's a prophet to Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom. But this isn't just dealing with the sin of a kingdom. This is dealing with the sin of its people because what makes a kingdom? We say pray for our nation, but what makes our nation? Our nation isn't some, you know, intangible entity that exists somewhere around Washington, D.C. Our nation is defined by its people. And when we say things like pray for our nation, what we're really saying is pray for the people. Because a nation, this political entity, this geopolitical thing that we call nations, they don't inherently sin. It's the people that make up those nations that are sinful. Therefore, pray for the people is code for pray, and pray for the nation is code for pray for the people. That our nation would repent is, is really saying the people need to repent. When the psalmist writes, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, what he's really saying is, Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. So as we talk about nations and kingdoms and prophets to this kingdom and prophets to that kingdom and kingdoms coming invading this kingdom and carrying this kingdom away captive, I don't want you to get lost in in this language and think that somehow this does not apply to our lives because it does. Because the same sin that Judah fell into is the same sin that I fall into. The same repentance that God demanded of Judah is the same repentance that God demands of me. And if God demands it of me, he demands it of you because we are just humans. We are just sinful men in need of a savior. One of the chants the kids learn in school is, this I know that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I'm going to confess to you, church, I am a great sinner. And my only hope is that Christ is a greater Savior and he is. So we're not just reading history here. We're reading God's dealings with his people. Yes, this happened 2,600 years ago, but the same sin that Judah dealt with 2,600 years ago is the same sin we're dealing with today, and this is why God recorded this for us and preserved it for us, so that we would deal with our sin in the light of a gracious God and a gracious Savior and confess our sin to Him and turn to Him, turn away from our sin and turn to the Savior. The gospel, which means good news, is not a pathway for you to save yourself. The gospel isn't a clear blueprint for you to save yourself. The gospel means we can't save ourselves. The good news is you can't save yourself, so stop trying. Turn to Jesus. He is the only one that can save you. The good news of the gospel is that he has done the work that you and I can't do. He has paid a price that you and I cannot pay. And it's not that we've been let off the hook. We have not been. Because the same gospel that saves us calls us to die, to lay down our life so that we can take up the life of Christ. We don't earn it. It's a free gift given to us. But it does cost you your life. The gospel doesn't just call us to come and be saved. The gospel calls us to come and die. And in our death, we shall be raised up in life, not a new and improved life of your own, but raised up in the life of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Habakkuk is prophesying 2,600 years. I'm sorry, 2,600 years, that brings us to today. Habakkuk is prophesying 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And he's prophesying about Jesus. He's pointing Israel to the Savior who has not yet come, but is coming. The same Savior that was spoken of in Genesis 3.15. The same Savior that was called the seed of promise that God gave to Abraham. The same Savior that's recorded all through the pages of Scripture This prophet, 600 years before the birth of that Savior, is pointing us, pointing God's people to the Savior. In Habakkuk's day, they were looking ahead. In our day, we are looking back at what Jesus has already done. We're not waiting for Jesus to save us. We're not waiting for Jesus to do something. Jesus has already done all that he needs to do to save us. The question is, are we trusting in that salvation? So the prophet prepares himself to hear from God. We too must prepare ourselves to hear from God. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. I will stand my watch. The prophet likens himself to a watchman. So you need to picture back in the day, cities had walls and they had walls to protect them. And one of the glories of the gospel prophesied long before Jesus came. was this idea that Israel would dwell in a land uh, without walls. They would dwell in unwalled cities, which was unheard of in their day. Because walls were built to protect them from invaders and from those who would want to come and do them harm. The thought of living in an unwalled city was, was something that was very foreign to men throughout much of history. But yet, here we are living in a land of unwalled cities. I don't know. I'd be willing to bet that some of you went to bed last night and didn't even lock the door to your house. Maybe, maybe not. He says, I will stand my watch. So he likens himself to a watchman, and a watchman would get up on the wall of the city and watch. He would watch for enemies. He would watch for news, for tidings of what was happening outside the walls. In particular, when, when the city or the kingdom was at war, And the king was out to war. Whatever might have been happening, the watchman's on the wall and he's waiting for tidings, for for good news to come. And this is the picture the prophet paints for us here. He says, I will stand my watch. I'll station myself on the wall and watch for tidings concerning the enemy, concerning what is happening around me. And then he says, I will set myself on the rampart. I will stand my watch. I will set myself on the rampart. The rampart was not just the wall. The rampart was an elevated part of the wall. It was a tower. And they would go to the highest point on the wall so that they could get the greatest vantage point and see as far as possible all around. And so the prophet here says, I will stand my watch. I will set myself on the rampart. I will take an elevated position to better survey the landscape while I'm watching. Now listen, Habakkuk is not saying he literally climbed up on the wall and went to the top of the tower. That's not what happened. He didn't go to, to, to the wall of Jerusalem and climb up to the highest tower and wait for God to talk to him. This is a metaphor. He didn't physically climb up on the wall and physically climb up into the top of a tower He's talking about a position within himself. He's saying, I'm going to position myself in my heart and in my mind. I'm going to take my stand. I'm going to set myself on the rampart. I'm going to watch and see what God will answer me. He was in prayer. He was in worship. He was in a position to hear God. From the Lord. As believers, we are prophets and we are watchmen of our day, proclaiming the word of the Lord, watching and praying. We are to station ourselves in a position to hear the word of the Lord and to discern what the Lord is saying concerning all we see and all we hear around us. One of the reasons we make the Bible reading challenge available to you and encourage you to participate in it is because, whether you realize it or not, when you're reading the scripture, you are putting yourself in a position to hear from God, to be able to see what God might say to you. In Christ, we've been set in a high tower, we've been anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. And like the prophets of old, God has given us His Spirit and His Word. His Spirit is dwelling in us and it illuminates the Word of God and it instructs us through the Scriptures. As we consume God's Word, we must discern what God is instructing us in our day, in our own lives. The prophet said, I will watch to see what he will say to me. We need to be doing that. We need to watch and see what God will say to us. We need to read his word with an expectancy that God will speak to us through his word. That he will instruct us through his word. That he will reveal things to us through his word. Jesus commanded his disciples when he was with them in the garden of Gethsemane just Hours before he was arrested, he commanded them to watch and pray. That command is still ours today. We are the people of God that are to be watching and praying concerning all we see and all we hear. Don't moan and complain about what you see on the news. Pray about what you see on the news. Don't become fearful about what is happening around you. Pray about what is happening around you. Don't feel powerless and hopeless because of all the things that are happening. Know that there is a God more powerful than anything that gives you more hope than you could possibly even imagine. And pray about those things. As we watch and see what God will say to us by His Spirit through His Word, we are to be prepared to answer him we will not be in a position prepared to answer god if we have not taken our place in prayer and in his word we can only be in a prepared position as we stand our watch and set ourselves in a place to see what he will say to see what he will answer and if we have not set ourselves in a position to see and hear and discern what God is saying, then we will not be in a position prepared to answer when God instructs us or corrects us. You do know that God instructs us all the time in ways, we, in ways that are obvious to us and ways that are not obvious to us. God corrects us. Constantly, he's correcting us, and we should be thankful for that. Sometimes we know he's correcting us, sometimes we don't know he's correcting us. And it's so interesting to me that the, the prophet here says, I'm going to take my stand, I'm going to set my watch, and I'm going to watch and see what God will say to me and what I will answer him when he corrects me. The prophet is expecting to be corrected by God. The prophet is welcoming that. Because why? Because the prophet knows that within himself, he does not have the capacity to make known to this people, to this nation, what needs to be, be made known to them. He is just a vessel. And God will declare his word through the prophet for the people for the prophet's correction, and for the people's correction. We should embrace God's correction because it means God loves us. Just like with our children. The Bible says if you don't correct your children, you don't love them. It's the parents who correct their children that demonstrate love. The parents who think they're being loving by never correcting their children. The Bible says that's not love. That's the opposite. That's actually hatred. Because people we don't love, people we don't care about, we don't really care what they do. But because we love our children, we correct them. Because God loves us, he corrects us. That's a good thing. So the prophet declared, I will answer when I am corrected. This must be our position. We must see God's correction as we seek his word of instruction. We do this the same way Habakkuk did by standing our watch and setting ourselves in a position to see and to hear what God will say. We do this in Christ, who is our strong tower, our wall, and our rock of refuge. We do this by reading and meditating, by praying and studying the Word of God. The Spirit of God dwelling in us illuminates God's Word to instruct us and to correct us. If we assume we already have what we need and we know all that we need to know, then why do we need God? And that's exactly what we see happening in our culture around us. This is why men have rejected God. They see no need for God. Why do I need God? I've got Google. I've got the internet. I've got my education. I've got my money. I've got whatever. Not only do I not need God, I don't even believe in God. Why do I need a myth? Why do I need a mythical creature to help me? I can help myself. And you know, God lets us do that for a time. But he also, if he loves us, lets us see how that works out. And it never works out well. And if your life has come to a place where it's not working out well because you've not relied on God, then you should be thankful that God loves you enough to bring you to that place. Because it's the ones that God doesn't love that he just allows to go on. That's what the psalm says. Basically, God intervenes in the lives of those he loves, but the wicked, he leaves them to, them, to themselves. The Bible is seen more as a relic today, when in reality it is the divinely breathed, the divinely inspired, inerrant word Of the living God. And like the prophet, we must prepare ourselves to hear from God. We are a people in desperate need of God's correction, and that correction is waiting for us in His Word. We are today's watchmen that must be prepared to see what He will say and to answer Him when He corrects us. We keep watching the news and reading the news and wondering when things are going to change. But the problem is we're waiting for something out there to change when all the while God is waiting for something in here to change. Nothing will ever change out there until something changes in here. You can vote all the politicians with exactly the letter you want before their name into office at every level. But nothing will change until something changes right here. Because politicians and political parties can't save us. If Jesus doesn't save us, we cannot be saved. And if we keep idolizing political parties and political systems, if we keep putting that up as the idol that will save us, we will continue to fail. Now, do I mean you shouldn't vote? No, you should vote. You should vote wisely. You should vote biblically. That means you need to get in your Bible and find out what that means. You need to understand what biblical leadership is while understanding that there is no perfect man, that men are sinful. But are we going to have a system that is more... In compliance with God's word or less compliant with God's word? Again, ultimately, that's going to be determined by what happens in here. And we can't be like that guy Jesus talked about who wants to take the speck out of his brother's eye while we've got a beam in our own. Before we start trying to figure out what anybody else needs. We need to check our own heart, get our own heart right, pray and trust God and plead with God for repentance to be granted to the people of God. Because it's not the world that needs to change, it's the people of God that must change. Solomon wrote these words, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, God made a promise in those, in, in those words recorded by Solomon. Then I will hear from heaven. and Then I will heal their land. When my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way. So guess where judgment begins? Peter says it begins in the house of God. That's exactly what Solomon wrote. God says you want your land to be healed? Then let the house of God and the people of God be healed. You want your world to be changed? Then let the people of God be changed. Let their hearts change first. And then everything will flow from that. And the prophet prepares to make the vision plain. So here's what God told him. So the prophet prophet says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart to watch and see what he will say to me and what I will correct when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered. So the prophet got himself in a position to hear what God would say, and God answered. The Lord answered and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. God is literally telling the prophet to make the vision he will write plain enough and big enough so that someone running by will be able to see it and read it and know what it says. You need to think road sign, not book. Not write it in a book and set it on a table in my house and invite all to come in and see it. Now, what God says here, write the vision, and make it plain on tablets, so that he who runs may read it, is literally a picture of signs. And this literally is what they would do. They, they're called tables. Your Bible might say table if you have a King James. Tablets or tables, they were large wooden leaves, And they would put wax on these wooden leaves, and they would take an iron pen, and they would write the message. And God is saying, you write that message so big and so clear that if someone is running by and doesn't stop and take the time to read it, they can see what it says. Kind of like Christ, Lord, Savior, peace, joy, glory. Who is that? That's Jesus. God was instructing the prophet to make the message plain and clear so that no one could miss it. God instructs us to do the very same thing with the preaching of the gospel. The gospel message is to be presented loud and clear so that no one misses it. Many churches today preach the gospel in the same way we try to medicate our kids or our pets. How do you get your dog to swallow a pill? Here, Rover! come take this pill, he won't take it. So you, you wrap it in something he likes to eat. You wrap it in something that tastes good to him. You wrap it up really, really good, and you give that wrapped up pill to Rover, and Rover eats it on down. Same thing we do with our kids. We mask the medicine, make it taste good so they'll take it. This is the way a lot of churches today preach the gospel The problem is the gospel doesn't work that way. The gospel is not a pill we swallow in hopes that we get better. If you want to think about a a picture, you need to think more of like a defibrillator. The gospel is not a pill. The gospel is more like a defibrillator. You take the paddles to a dead heart and you shock that heart back to life. There's nothing subtle. There's nothing gentle about it. It's not supposed to be. Because we're dealing with those who are dead. And you don't plead with a dead man, oh, please come back to life. I promise if you'll come back to life, I'll give you ice cream today. Or like the kid said, I promise later on, I'll give you all the chewing gum you want if you'll just come back to life. It doesn't work that way. Listen, when you're on the operating table and you've died, your heart is dead. You better hope that doctor's not sitting there pleading with you to come back to life. You better hope that he takes those defibrillators and he applies them to your body and shocks. This word is in the Bible, shocks the hell out of you and brings you back to life. That's what the gospel does. The gospel shocks the hell out of us and brings us back to life. It brings us to life because hell, sin, and death killed us. It's the devil and the demons that are going to spend an eternity in hell that have lied to us, that have deceived us, and we believe the lie from the very beginning, and we're still believing the lie today. But we want God to wrap up the gospel in something that tastes really good to us so that we don't really know what we're getting. And we somehow think that's going to magically save us. It does not work that way. The remedy for sin is not meant to be subtle. Sin does not subtly and gently kill us. It's shockingly and brutally kills us. The remedy for sin must confront sin head on without hesitation and with power that shocks us into life. This is the power of God's love for us in Christ that raises us from death to life. This is the power of the gospel. This is what we need. If our gospel is hidden, it cannot save So we must make it plain and put it out for all to see and for all to hear. That means your life should not be a subtle gospel message. Your life should be a stark contrast with the world. Declaring plainly for all to see the gospel of Christ that has shocked you and saved you and brought you back from death to life. Then God says this, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, though it seems to be delayed, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. God proves, God tests our patience and the obedience of our faith. God does that on purpose. It's not an accident. We are messengers. We are watchmen on the wall waiting for news. We do not manufacture the message. The watchman is not writing the message. He's waiting to receive the message. The watchman doesn't manufacture the message. The watchman simply delivers the message And this is what we are. We are messengers. We are watchmen waiting for news. We don't manufacture the message. We don't write the news. We receive it and we deliver it. The timing is not in the hands of the messenger. The timing is in the hands of the author of the message. Many of us don't like God's timing. It's often contrary to our own. But we've got to be okay with that, because we're simply the messengers. We're not writing the message. We're not organizing and we're not ordaining the time. We're just receiving it and we're delivering it. God is the author. The timing is not in our hands, it's in His hands. He's the author and He knows the timing of what He has purposed. Our faith is not in the timing of the message. Our faith is in the author of the message. If he chooses to delay, we are to wait for it. If God has declared it, he will perform it. He does not lie. He will perform it in his appointed time. Faith waits. Faith does not lose hope. Faith works by love. Faith waits by love. God's love is perfect. So we have reason to wait in faith knowing that he who promised is faithful. And God declares this, the just shall live by his faith. That means all of us who are in Christ are called to live by faith. Not trusting in our timing, not trusting in anyone else's timing, but trusting in the Lord. Behold the proud, God says, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. God contrasts the proud with the just, the unrighteous with the righteous. That word there, the proud, behold the proud, his soul is not upright, it literally means it's not right. It's not smooth, it's not straight, it's bent, it's crooked, it's not right. But the just or the righteous, the right ones, that word just there, is the same word translated righteous. The righteous shall live by faith. This is quoted tri- twice for us in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Roman writes this in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 of Romans. Listen to what Paul says. In talking about the gospel, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The writer of the Hebrews in the letter to the Hebrews also quotes this verse. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 35 through 39. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews pins here. Therefore do not cast away your confidence which has great reward for you have need of endurance. Don't grow weary of waiting. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Wait for it. It's coming. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. The soul of the proud is not upright in him, but the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. We are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not by the works of the flesh. The proud seeks to justify himself. The just or the righteous, through faith, trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are not waiting for God to justify us. By grace through faith in Jesus, we have already been justified in the finished work of Christ that he has already completed in the cross. Many today still mock God as they have always listened to the words of the Apostle Peter. These words were penned 2,000 years ago. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last day, mockers walking according to their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. That's not something new. Men have been scoffing and mocking God since the beginning. For this they willfully forget. You notice that word willfully, you should mark that in your Bible. They don't accidentally forget. They're not just poor ignorant souls. They willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord One day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Who's the us here? Peter's writing to the church. He is long-suffering toward us who are his, who belong to Jesus. If you're in Christ, if you're trusting Christ, you need to know that God is long-suffering. You're never going to wear out his patience he endures always, you endure also to the very end. The Lord is not, not slack concerning his promises but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any of us should perish but that all of us should come to Repentance. When the apostles of Jesus said, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven? You know, that's a lot. Jesus said, no. I say to you, you don't forgive him 70 times. You forgive him 70 times seven. Which translates into, as many times as he seeks forgiveness, he shall receive forgiveness. How many times can you seek God for forgiveness? Is there a limit? to the grace of God, the forgiveness of God that is offered to you in Jesus Christ as a child of God? No. Why? Because God is not slack. He is long-suffering toward us who believe, not willing that any of us who believe should perish, but that all of us who believe should come to repentance. The proud willfully forget, the just live by faith, trusting the promise of God even though it sometimes seems delayed. The promise of God, the plan and the purposes of God are never delayed. It is right on time. It will come at the time appointed by God himself, just as it was with the coming of Jesus. Paul writes this in his letter to the Galatians. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. In other words, there was a time appointed. And when that appointed time came, God sent forth his son, the Lord Jesus. The fullness of the time was the appointed time ordained by God. The just shall live by faith. We live by faith, trusting in the author of the message, not the timing of the message. Faith rests in the appointed times of God. God has an appointed time for all things. Our faith is not based on the times, but our faith is based on the author of time itself. The just shall live by faith, trusting in God, who is the author of the message and the author of time itself. May we stand our watch and set ourselves on the wall and watch to see what He will say to us and what we will answer when He corrects us. He is gracious, otherwise we could not stand. In God's love, And in God's grace, he invites us to come to him. He invites us to come to salvation. Trust in Jesus now. He invites us to come to his table as those who have trusted in him. To dine with him and to celebrate the son. As you trust in Jesus, you are welcome to this table. Not because you're perfect. Not because you never fail. Because Jesus is perfect. And He has made a way for you where there is no way. And this table celebrates that way. This table remembers that way. You don't need Mary. You don't need a saint. You don't need anyone interceding on your behalf except the Lord Jesus Himself. And the Bible says He never sleeps He never slumbers. He ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. He has already paid the price for you. Go to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And come to the table and celebrate the salvation we have in the Son. Amen? Well, let's stand. Habakkuk declared that he would... Take his place in the watch, set himself on the rampart. We are watchmen, church. We are the watchmen of our day. We are the prophets of our day. We are the proclaimers of God's word. We're not writing his word, we're proclaiming the word that's already been written. We are to stand our watch. We are to set ourselves on the wall who is Christ. And watch and see what God will say and what God will answer. And how God will instruct us and how he will correct us. We are messengers. We are to make the message plain so that it cannot be missed. We are not writing the message. We are delivering the message. But our lives should proclaim loud and clear through our voices, through our lifestyles, through everything. The message that God has declared that there is salvation in one name only, that is the name of Jesus. We are to trust the author of the message. He is true, he cannot lie. We are not to take our eyes off the author and the finisher of our faith. Though the timing seems long and delayed, we are to wait for it because it will surely come at the appointed time. That is faith. The proud is not faithful and they are not right. The just, those who are righteous ones in Christ, they are right. Made right by Jesus. Made right by faith in Jesus. They shall live by faith. We are called to trust Him, to wait for Him. He will not delay. God, in all that he has promised us in Christ, will surely come. It will not tarry. All of it will come. Every bit of it to its uttermost fulfillment, it will come in his appointed time. Though he tarry, wait for it, have faith. He is faithful. Do you hear me? Have faith. He is faithful. Have faith. Don't be quiet. Have faith. Let your faith ring loud because he is faithful. Amen?